today, uh, just as we're getting started, uh, why don't you turn to the book of Psalms, and I would like to read a psalm uh, that uh, reflects some of the glory of the things we're going to be talking about today, and then we'll go back to our passage in Genesis and do some review and go on from there. But in Psalm 8, the psalmist is uh, overwhelmed by the greatness of God and specifically uh, in the way that that greatness is manifested in in the things that we're going to be talking about today. He says, beginning in verse 1, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes You have established strength because of Your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have ordained, what is man that You take thought of him and the son of man that You care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the psalmist is overwhelmed by creation and specifically he is overwhelmed by the fact that God has placed man in such a position in creation. And that's some of what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 1 and in verse 26, which is kind of right in the middle of day 6 of the creation. And uh, I'd like to get down today uh, through the end of the creation week, so I'd like to get down through verse Three, which is all of chapter two, which is also the completion of what we call the prologue to Genesis. Remember when we did our introduction to Genesis a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Genesis is broken down into ten polydots or ten accounts or ten generations. Uh, the first one beginning in chapter two, verse four. But before the beginning of these ten polydots or polydot. Uh, is this prologue that comes uh, uh, in chapter 1 and uh, the first three verses of chapter 2. And so we're going to, uh, Lord willing, we'll finish that today. But last week, we covered a large portion of, of chapter 1. We, we really focused primarily on, on day 2 all the way up through the middle of day 6. So we started in verse 5 and uh, or verse 6 uh, and went all the way down uh through about verse 25, and we actually kind of cheated and went back a little bit into day one again also. So, uh, before we go on into the things that we're going to look at today, what do you remember from our from our study last week? Lord made something that we said it was good. Yeah. Everything he made, he looked at it and he said it's good. What is that? What is he talking about when he's saying it's good? What what is it good in reference to? What does he have in mind? Look, you look like you're going to say something. Right? Well, I feel like we've been assuming it's good because it's serving his purpose. Okay, serving his purpose. And what 
what was his purpose? What was he what was he trying to accomplish in making all these things? The heavens and the earth and the plants and the animals and all that sort of stuff. The light and darkness, the day and night. Pardon? Okay? He's making a place for us. He was creating a place for us. So whatever else that expression means when he says he saw that it was good, whatever else it means, it means that in each step of creation as he's going as he's going along and, 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 and accomplishing each item or each step in creation, uh, that each one of these steps, each one of these things that he creates is fulfilling and serving the purpose that he intended. He sees how it will fulfill and serve this purpose to be a place for us, a good place for us, uh, a hospitable environment in which mankind can live. Okay? What else do you remember that we talked about last week? I really, really like the way you explained the triad that day two and day, however that went, but it was what day five. Or <laughs> one and four, two yeah. and five. Yeah. Okay, three. Okay, yeah. so they went together because what was created in the first three days was parallel to what was created in the second three days, and that that was created to fulfill the next step. Right. So it was interesting. I never had seen that before, so that was probably neat. I'm sure that was yeah, that is fascinating, isn't it? How we have these we have these two, these two triads: days one through three, and then days four through six, and they correspond to each other, as uh, as we were just uh, as we were just thinking about. They correspond so that uh, and and the first triad, the first three days, has to do with. Uh, remember, in verse uh, two of chapter one, it says the earth was formless and void; it was without form and it was empty. And the first triad has to do with God giving form. So days 1, 2, and 3 has to do primarily with God giving the form or bringing form out of this formlessness or bringing form out of chaos or order out of chaos. Uh, again, I, I, I want to stress we have to use that word chaos carefully there. Uh, but it is a word that's helpful to me. And then in the second triad, he is, he is, uh, is an answer to the to the emptiness of verse 2. So the first triad is an, is an answer to the formlessness and the second triad is an, is an answer to the emptiness that he talks about in verse 2. As he begins to fill up this now formed and ordered creation, he begins to fill it up with the plants and the animals and the fish and the birds and all that sort of thing. So, uh, and the lights in the heavens and, and all that sort of thing. So we have those triads. And that's helpful. That helps us remember the order of creation. I don't know... If, if, you know, we all probably, and we're little crumb crunchers, we probably all learned, you know, the order of creation and what was created on day one and day two and all that sort of thing. And we probably promptly forgot it the day, <laughs> the moment we walked out of that Sunday school class. Uh, but this kind of helps helps us give something to hang the order of creation on and think in terms of uh, more orderly about the, about the order of creation. What else did we talk about that you remember? The separation. Okay. Okay. For example. Okay. 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 And what's the significance of these separations? Well, what's one thing we learn from this? Yeah. That these separations, these boundaries, these distinctions are the things that give us order in, in the created 
uh, in the created cosmos, okay? And it is, in fact, what gives us the cosmos. The, co- the word cosmos has that idea of orderliness to it, okay? And we have, the, we have this orderliness because of the distinctions and the boundaries that exist. And, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that today because now kind of one of the ultimate distinctions or boundaries uh, is talked about in the second half of day six. But so we talked about the importance of boundaries and distinctions and separations for the existence of order. And we talked about the fact that when we obscure those boundaries, when we, when we erase those distinctions or ignore those distinctions, what we are is we are we are uh, moving back towards chaos. We are moving back towards disorder. Now, we also stress that it's important that we observe the distinctions and the boundaries, the delineations that God distinguishes. And it's also important that we not create distinctions and boundaries and limitations where God does not put them, where God does not place them. And we talked about how that that's one of the... Uh, the things that leads to legalism and leads to racism and things like that is where we put boundaries where God didn't. But it is important that we observe the boundaries that God has created in order that that we might have order in our universe and order in our lives and order in the world. Okay. Anything else? Well, I just wanted to say just a minute about what I was talking to you about last week about creating me a pure heart, mm-hmm. uh, creating me a, a, in Psalm I was thinking about creation and, and how well God continues to create. Mm-hmm. And it does say create. I didn't do a word study, so I don't know if that's the same word. But mm-hmm. Creating in me a pure heart, and then just taking that to your separation, is that it is a separation. Yeah. When I have a pure heart, yeah. I am being separated. Yeah. And the things and those boundaries. demonstrate 
in the mind of the Jews, and in our minds as well, of course, that there is only one true God, that He is the creator of the heavens and the earth, that He alone is to be worshipped, He alone is to be served, uh, and that all the other things that we worship are merely creatures, okay? And we are worshiping, when we worship them, we are worshiping the creature rather than the creator, as God says. So, so it's important to keep that in mind, that that's one of the things that he's, that he's doing. Okay. Well, let's move on then. Uh, in, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 26, and we are, as I said, in the middle of day 6. At the beginning of day 6, he created the beasts, the crawling creatures, and all that sort of thing. And then he picks it up in verse 26, and he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts, the New International says, and all their vast array. I like that. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Okay? So now we come to really what is the pinnacle of creation. Okay? This is the whole purpose of it all. Okay? Everything else is designed to this point. Okay? Uh, all, the, all the heavens, and I know this sounds very kind of egocentric, uh, but that's how I understand the Scripture reveals it. Okay, that that God's purpose was to create mankind to fellowship with Him, and everything else in creation was designed to create that environment that was suitable for man to live in, and which would cause man to see and recognize and understand the glory and the majesty of God. Okay, so. So we're really coming to the whole pinnacle and the whole point of, of creation, uh, which is the creation of mankind. Okay, and, uh, and and when we get to this point, you'll notice that it really shifts gears. It's just it's just kind of uh, I don't I don't know how to articulate this, but it's 
It's like the whole discussion is elevated a notch. Okay? We've been going through this magnificent story of creation and, and God is speaking and God's creating things and God's bringing things into existence out of nothing. And it's all very spectacular. It's very, very, but it's very straightforward. Just God says, let there be light. And there was light. And you know, Let there be plants. And there were plants. You know, and then let there be the beasts. And there, there were the beasts. Okay? But now we come to this part of creation and he just talks about it just totally different. And there's a there's a personalableness to it that uh, that you really, that you don't see in the earlier part of, of the story. Okay, and and there's this this element of deliberation that comes up here. Let us make man in our image. Okay, and. And that's not to suggest that there wasn't deliberation and there wasn't deliberateness in the other aspects of creation. But at this point, the writer of Genesis wants us to wants us to think about that and reflect on on God's deliberateness as He makes this decision and this decree that man is going to be created. Okay. Now, commentators wrestle with this idea of. of what does it mean? What is it talking about when it's when God speaks and says, "Let us make man in our image"? And there are uh, several possible explanations for that. Uh, what he's talking about, and some think, well, maybe he's talking to the angels, or maybe he's just kind of thinking in himself, or whatever. Uh, but uh, traditionally, the, the most uh, evangelicals and and, and uh, conservative theologians down through the centuries. In general, not exclusively, but in general, have understood this to be a reference to the Trinity. That this is, in fact, the Trinity deliberating among itself. Okay, and like I say, there are some other views, and and, and there are some good arguments for the others. But as I look at them, and as I think about the various possibilities of, of the ways we could understand this passage, the one that to me seems to make the most sense is this is a reflection of the Triune God as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity, deliberate together to make man in their own image, in his own image. Okay? And, and at this point, the whole concept of, of what is about to be created is, is, is just lifted to a whole new level. We don't have this about any other aspect of creation. Nothing else in creation is made in the image of God. Now, you'll notice in verse 27 that, uh, that he kind of repeats everything. He actually, he's actually stating the, the, uh, the fact of the creation. In, in verse 26, it's the plan of the creation of man. And in verse 27, it's the fact of creation of man. But verse 27 is really a neat verse. In the Hebrew, it's a poem. It's the very first poem in all of Scripture. And the Scripture is loaded with all kinds of poetry. But verse 27 is the first poem uh, in the Hebrew text in all of Scripture. Okay? And what's striking to me about verse 27 is that, is that it's emphasizing three distinct things about the creation of man. What, what are those three things? And let me give you a tip here, a clue. Oftentimes, oftentimes this is true in the Greek and oftentimes it's true in the Hebrew as well. 
that when when uh, the, the syntax of a sentence, syntax has to do with the order of words, that syntax is often a clue to the significance of what the author is trying to communicate. And, 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 and one of the ways they do that is by putting the most important thing at the first of the sentence. Okay? So they tend to move the more important words to the, to the beginning of the sentence to give them greater emphasis. With that in mind, what do you see are the three things that, that Moses is trying to emphasize here for us about the creation of man? Okay. God created man. Created man in his image. Okay. Okay. Great. Good. Excellent. Uh, three things. God created man in his image. Okay. And he puts the word creation at the beginning of the sentence. He's emphasizing the fact that man is created. Secondly, he repeats the same thing over, but notice he reverses the words. And now he puts image at the beginning and creation at the end of the sentence to emphasize the fact that he is created, not only is created by God, but he is created in the image of God. And then the third thing that he emphasizes is that God created male and female. So that whatever we are saying uh, about about what God has created here, we are saying is equally true about both man and woman. Okay? So not only is man created by God, but woman is created by God. Not only is man in the image of God, male in the image of God, but the female is in the image of God. Okay? And, and so the, the, the idea of the passage is to communicate uh, emphatically these three points. Man is created by God. Man is a deliberate act by the will of God. He is not the product of some chance mutation. He is not an accident. At some point in eternity past, God deliberated and determined that He would make man and He would make a man in His image and He would make them male and female. He decided to do this then he did it. And when we get to the story, uh, the 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 uh, the story next week about the creation of man in chapter two, we're going to get we're going to see more of God's involvement and how He carries this out and how He does this. But but what is but what is clear here? What the writer of Genesis is trying to tell us here is that man is unique in all of creation. It is an offensive and repulsive idea to me that man is just simply the highest of all the animals. That is just an absolutely repulsive thought. Because the scripture teaches us that man is not simply the highest of all the animals. Man stands unique in creation. And it involves special deliberation on the part of the mind and the heart of God. And then he acted. He not only thought it, thought up this plan, but he acted and he carried out this plan so that man was specifically created by an act of God at that point in time in which we will see next week that he formed him from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. And that incidentally also, and we'll talk more about this next week, uh, 
that also reveals to us something else that's distinct about man. With none of the rest of creation do we have this idea that the breath of God is breathed into him. But the thing that animates you and I, the thing that's inside of us that makes us live, and that thing that departs from us at that moment of death when we lay down and they put us in a box and they put us in a grave, that thing that is in us that animates us and drives us and, and invigorates us is the breath of God. And in that respect, we are unique from all the other living things on the face of the earth. And we'll talk more about that when we get to that next week. But what we want to understand when we look at this passage, and what Moses wants us to understand, what God wants us to understand, and what he wanted the children of Israel to understand, is how absolutely startling, unique, and different mankind was from all the rest of the creation. We were created in a very special way and we were created. Now, the second thing he chooses to emphasize is this idea of the image of God. Okay? Now, we could take weeks <laughs> to talk about this subject of the image of God and we're not going to um, because it's a very deep subject. One of the things that's interesting in this passage is that when you'll notice when he says he's going to make man in his image, what does he tell us that image is what is the what is the image of God that we bear? Character and nature. You see that in there? No, I don't. <laughs> I asked, what does the passage say? <laughs> You're getting ahead of me, Ruth. <laughs> What's interesting is it doesn't really seem to tell us much, does it? It just states the fact that we are made in the image of God. Now, I would suggest it does tell us one thing, and, and I'll elaborate that in a minute. But, but Ruth is right. To, to understand what it means that we are made in the image of God, we're going to have to study more than Genesis chapter 1. We're going to have to study the totality of Scripture to understand what that means. And, 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 and Christians and theologians and students of Scripture have done that down through the centuries, have studied it, and that's why we could spend many weeks talking about the image of God and what it involves. But, but I would suggest to you, uh, just uh, by way of, of, for the sake of brevity, I would suggest that it involves roughly three different categories. Uh, three different uh, primary categories of ways that we are uh, made in the likeness of God. And the first one has to do with our spirituality, our intelligence, our freedom. Uh, things like that. We are, we are created spiritual creatures. Okay? You're your dog, I know you probably like your dog and you you know, you cuddle your dog and you let him sleep at the foot of the bed and everything. But your dog is not a spiritual creature. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> <laughs> he, he has no he has no spirit. I'm not gonna answer the question of whether or not dogs go to heaven, but uh, uh, but he has no spirit. Okay. Neither do the ants with which we are doing war in our garden this year. Uh, they have no spirit, okay? Mankind alone is a spiritual being. And mankind has an intellect. Now that's not to say that some creatures don't have brains and, and some lower form of intelligence, but, but the, the, the level of distinction between the intelligence of human beings 
and the level of intelligence of the rest of creation is infinite. Okay. Uh, and then, and then the the third thing is this idea of freedom. That that mankind is volitional, in a sense in which none of the rest of creation is volitional. And and these are all essential. This is all just in the first category. These are all essential for man to serve the purpose for which he was created. So that our spirituality makes it possible for us to have communion with God. Our intelligence makes it possible for us to know and to understand God. And our volition makes it possible for us to love God. So all three aspects of this first, or three parts of this first aspect, spirituality, intelligence, and freedom, all of that, all of that is absolutely essential for us to fulfill the purpose for which God created us in the first place was for this purpose of communion and fellowship and and co-working and co-regency with Him. Okay. Uh, the second aspect is the idea or the area of moral integrity and holiness. When we were first created, Adam and Eve, they were created with moral, perfect moral integrity. They were perfectly holy. And of course, they blew that in the fall, and we'll talk in depth about that as we go on through Genesis. But initially, they were created as, as perfectly moral and holy. That was forfeited in its entirety in the fall. And it is restored to us in the second hour. Okay. The third aspect, and there's great debate among uh, commentators about this particular question, and I wrestled with it, and, and I really didn't even resolve the question in my own mind as to whether or not this was an aspect of our image or a consequence of our image. And that's this idea of dominion. Okay? Ruling over the creation. Okay? And I reached the conclusion that it is that that it really is an, an aspect of our image of God. Okay? Some theologians and commentators say, well, it, really it's not so much an aspect of our image, but it's a result or a consequence of us being in the image of God. But there's a reason I'll explain in a minute why I think it really is an aspect of our of, of our imageness, of our likeness, of our similarity to God. Okay, is this dominion over the creation, what is sometimes referred to as our vice regency? It's a it's a beautiful concept. This idea that God has created. You go through all this story of the creation in Genesis one, and you just you look at this magnificent creation. And then you come to the end of it and God makes man and then he takes man and he says, okay, there's some degree, there's some extent to which I'm going to be hands off here. And I'm going to put you in charge. This is your job. You rule over the fish and the birds and the beasts and you subdue the earth. And we become the vice regents through which God rules over all of this magnificent creation He made. 
And it's really an astonishing thing that God has done. That's what prompted the psalmist to write that psalm that we just read at the beginning of our study. When you think about the... And, and that's what the psalmist is saying. He says, when I think about the sun and the moon, he says, when I think about the magnificence of this creation, and then I think about, what is man that you're mindful of him? You've made him a little lower than God. You've given him dominion. You've given him rule over all of his creation. And it's just a it's a, it's a, it's a spectacular idea, this idea of the of the the glory of God being to some degree given to man, the glory of his authority and rule and dominion over this magnificent creation that he's created. He then just puts it in our hands. And he says, okay now, it's yours. You take it. You work with it. You make it what you want it to be. This is all, of course, done uh, before the fall. But the decision is made. The lot is cast, if you will. The die is cast. That this dominion is given to man. And, And it's so... So anyway, there are these three general aspects. Spirituality, intelligence, and freedom being one. Moral integrity and holiness being the second. And dominion being the third that, that seem to come out in this idea of the image of man. Now, as I was wrestling with this, I was thinking of this, I was meditating on this, I was thinking, okay, now, this is good, uh, and, but we understand that mankind is the only part of God's creation that is made in His image. Which means that we are made in His image and the angels are not. Alright? So then I had to ask myself, as you're probably asking yourself, in what ways do I bear the image of God that angels don't bear the image of God? And so I was thinking about these categories that we've talked about. Okay. And I was thinking about spirituality and intelligence and freedom and obviously the angels have all of those things, don't they? And uh, and then there's the moral dimension, the holiness dimension, and obviously the angels have that dimension too. Okay. And that's what led me to conclude, since we know that mankind is made in the image of God and the angels aren't, that's what led me to conclude that dominion is an aspect of our image. Because that is the one thing we have that the angels do not have. We have dominion over the creation. Now, I know it may be a little hard for us to think in these terms because when we think of angels, we think of these beautiful, magnificent, powerful creatures. Okay, But what are they? But ministering servants sent out, Paul says, to minister to us. They are not over us. Now, it's true that angels come. They have far more power than we do. And they oftentimes come bearing to us messages from God. Okay, And, and, and so in that respect, we are obligated to obey the word that they bring to us. But the angels serve us. We do not serve them. And the angels are not given dominion over the earth, but mankind is given dominion over the earth. And that is what... That is what distinguishes us from the angels. Because they have many of these other things that we have. They have the spirituality and they have 
they have the holiness and they have the intelligence and they have the freedom and all these other things, but the one thing they do not have is they do not have dominion. They are not vice-regents. Okay? Well, which is maybe why Paul says things the way he does say them when he says, what, do you not know that, in, you know, that you're going to judge the angels? And he writes that as if to say, well, you should have known this. And I go, well, well, why would I know this? How would I know this? Well, I would have known this. I mean, I, I would have known it if I had recognized that I have something the angels don't have, which is I have dominion. I have dominion over creation, and since they're part of the creation, ultimately, uh, I'm going to have dominion over them. Okay? Well, this idea of dominion brings up some, some interesting thoughts. And one is that one of the things that, that's included in this idea of dominion is the idea of subduing the earth. In, in his instructions to Adam and Eve here, uh, he, he tells them uh, that they are to, they're to rule over the fish and the sea, and, so, and they are to subdue the earth. And, and the, the idea we get from that is that God has created this wonderful environment for us as mankind. But he's left it in some sense kind of still open for modification. And it is, it is our job as vice regents to subdue the earth. It is our job as vice regents to make this environment even more suitable and more pleasurable for our purposes and for the glory of God. Some of you were probably doing that yesterday. I did a little bit of it yesterday, not much. And I would rather my wife or one of my kids did it, but I did it. I went out and I mowed the lawn. Okay? When I mowed the lawn, what was I doing? Uh, you know, you may not think of it in this terms, but I was subduing the earth. <laughs> you know, those little grass blades were growing away and I cut them all off this eye. You know, that's how I want it. Why? Because it makes my yard look the way I want it to make. Look. Because I have intelligence and I have freedom, and I have creativity, and I am subduing the earth. Now, some of you probably were a little more artistic than me, and you might not have gone out. You might have gone out yesterday and planted some pansies, or, or you might have built a building, or you may have built a highway, or a dam, or a, or a hospital, or you may have made some great scientific discovery. Uh, I don't know what you did yesterday, but this is what we're all about, and you'll notice that even the pagans do it. It's not just righteous people who do this stuff. The pagans go out and do it. And they build these spectacular things and they draw these beautiful pictures and they, and they landscape gorgeous gardens and they do all of this. Why? Because they're in the image of God. It's just what they are. It's what we are as human beings. We are compelled by our nature as, the, as being in the image of God to subdue the earth and to make it more pleasurable and more, and more suitable for our purposes and for our pleasure and for our domain. Yeah? So, what you're saying is, it's, I hate to use this term, but it's wired into our DNA by God to um, humans, to the cultural mandate, Uh, yes. yes. For his glory. Yes. Absolutely. 
Now, this does not give us a license to exploit or destroy the environment. To, dis- to exploit or destroy the earth. There's no license in that. That's a product of sin. Okay. But mankind in his, in his unfallen condition would have, would have done magnificent and splendid things with this earth. Even far beyond anything that we've managed to do in our fallen state. And never exploited or damaged the earth in any way. So, so that's one aspect of this idea of dominion. Another thing about this idea of dominion as we're thinking about it is, is uh, this is another one of those separations or distinctions or boundaries that we talked about last week, isn't it? It's something that's different between all the rest of creation and you and I. There's a, there's, a, there's a boundary there. There's a limitation. There's a separation there. There's a qualitative separation between you and I and the rest of creation. And that is that you and I are made in the image of God. And part of that image is this idea of dominion. And, and if that's true, remembering what we said last week, that is, that is imperative that we observe these separations and distinctions that God has placed in creation in order to avoid the return to chaos, the return to formlessness. If that's important, then it's important that this idea of dominion be preserved lest we return to chaos. That when we fail to observe our our God-given mandate and, and obligation and responsibility to be rulers, vice-regents over the creation, when that gets obscured and the creation is elevated up to a level with us, then chaos ensues. And I never thought of this before until yesterday, but it struck me. Where is the first place that happens? Where is the first... What is the first time when this idea of mankind's dominion over creation broke down. Where? Okay, okay. Excellent point. I never, I never thought of this. Because, you know, when I think of what happened there with Eve and the, and, and the serpent there in the garden, you know, you, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, you know, is is the whole idea of the questioning of the Word of God. And of course, that's you know that's a very important element of the fall. But there's another thing that's going on there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is the serpent takes dominion over Eve, and she allows that to happen. She allows the serpent and Satan, who is also part of the part of the creation over which she's to have dominion, she allows the serpent and she allows Satan to have dominion over her, to tell her what's what and to tell her what to do. And she submits to that. And so this distinction, this, this important distinction of mankind having dominion over the creation is one of the factors that plays a part in the fall and all the ensuing chaos that comes from so this whole idea of mankind's dominion is, is, is just incredibly, incredibly important. And of course, it's, as we pointed out by reading Psalm 8, it's an extremely spectacular concept. Well, 
So God created man, he created man as image. As I said, we're not going to explore the, the whole depths of this idea of the image because we'd be here for weeks. But, but let's go on now. So we come to the end of day six. And, and uh, beginning in chapter two in verse uh, one, he says, he says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their, as I said, and all their vast array. That, that term there, their hosts, is uh, incidentally the same, same word that's oftentimes used in the Old Testament to refer to the heavenly hosts because of their brilliance. And it's also uh, a term that's oftentimes referred to vast armies. And, and so it's, it's really a loaded term. It's really a, it's a term that's just full of, of just depth and meaning. Is that, is that God has completed the creations of the heavens and the earth and all this vast, brilliant army of hosts, this vast host of things that He's, that he's filled the earth with. Incidentally, that's one other distinction between man and, and the rest of creation that when He creates the fish and He creates the beast and He creates the grass and He creates, he creates tons of them, right? He creates just scads of them. He just fills the sea with fish and He fills the sky with birds and He fills the land with animals. But when He creates man, what does He create? Two of them. Man, male and female. Okay. That's another uh, interesting distinction there that you see. But, but uh, so anyway, He's just filled it with this with this host of things. And when God has done all that, then what happens? He rests. Why does He rest? Perfectly exhausted. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I, I didn't ask that. That is a question I want to ask, but it's not the way I want to ask the question right now. The point is, He stopped. Why did He stop? He was done. God was done. He was done making animals, and he was done making trees, and he was done making grass, and he was done making light and day and night, and he was done with all that stuff. And if Genesis chapter one and the first part of chapter two is a polemic against the false gods, it's also a polemic against evolution. It's done, folks. It ain't going on. I'm sorry to say, but you're not going to evolve into something better. You're going to be changed, <laughs> but you're not going to evolve. God finished His work. He completed His work. This is something we discover about God. One of the wonderful things about creation and about the story of creation is that we discover and learn all kinds of things about the God we serve. And one of the things we discover and learn about the God we serve is that He's a God who finishes what He starts. You know, I'm afraid I'm not always very good at that. <laughs> there are several projects around my house <laughs> that probably will never get done. But God always finishes what He starts. And he who has started a good work in you will complete it. It's just the way he is. And you may get a little impatient at times with him getting to that point, but he's going to finish his work in you. 
And he's going to make you, once again, fully into his likeness. That's, what he, that's just the way he is. He finishes his work. But, in addition to that, if there's anything clear from this passage, the world and the cosmos is not like some great clock that God just wound up and set on a shelf to tick away and evolve into whatever it was going to evolve into. God acted specifically by His plan and by His deliberation and according to His decree. He brought about this world and He finished it. And when He finished it, He took a day off. Then comes the next question, the question I asked earlier, which is, why? Why did God rest? Because he was giving us an example. Okay. That sounds like a simple answer, but you know what? It's the only answer I've come up with. Because our Lord does not grow weary or tired. He was not exhausted. (laughs) I would have been exhausted after the first blade of grass. He was not exhausted. He wasn't worn out. But he rested. And I explore, and I look in Scripture, and I try and find, why did he rest? And it's interesting. I read a bunch of commentators about this passage. I didn't read one who explained why God rested. I didn't read one who even addressed the question, why did God rest? But I can only want discover one reason, and that's, that's in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus says, that man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. And then I go, oh. So when God rested on the seventh day, it was for us. As they said, it was an example. Not because God was weary and tired and needed to rest, but because He knew as creatures we would need to. And so God took a day off to set for us an example and a pattern. Have you ever done that for your children? I don't mean take a day off. I mean, that's a good question too. But have you ever done something for your kids you really didn't need to do, but you did it just so they would see you doing it and know, oh, that's how I do it. That's how I do it. As an example. You know, my, one of my daughters was, was wanting to repaint a, a dresser first. Well, you know, it's kind of nice to, you know, in, in launch on an endeavor like that when your dad's a painter, you know. But in all reality, I thought her dresser looked fine. I painted it the first time, and I thought it was still quite nice, thank you. It had rag-rolling features in it, and it was pretty cool looking, I thought, for a pretty old dresser. But it was time for change, she and her mother had decided, and so yesterday was the day that my daughter was going to paint her dresser. I had no interest in it. But I went out and painted the first drawer. Why? Because I needed the drawer painted? No. Because it was making a difference to me. It's hidden behind the door in her bedroom. I never see it. But I did it to show an example to her how she should paint her dresser. So God rested on the seventh day. Not because God needed rest, but because we need rest. And he was trying to illustrate to us this vital principle of rest. 
And, uh, and then we move forward in the story and we get to that point in the story where we were a number of weeks ago when we were looking at the encounter at Horeb and Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, when God is giving the covenant and He's entering into this very special covenant relationship with Israel, what does He do? That's part of that covenant. What does He institute? The Sabbath. Okay. So then this idea that the Sabbath is a sanctified day and a blessed day becomes institutionalized in the form of the Sabbath as we typically think of it okay, in Ten Commandments, in the fourth of the Ten Commandments. And God gives some very specific instructions to Israel. Now, God did not prohibit all work on the Sabbath day. There were some things that Israel was permitted to do on the Sabbath day. Things that were essential, like eating and cooking and things like that. Military activity. Remember, uh, remember the, uh, their uh, military conquest of Jericho? What did they do? They marched around the city how many times? How many times? How long did they do it? No, seven days. Well, the seventh day is seven times around. Yeah. So on seven days they marched around the city. Well, we don't know if the seventh day when they marched seven times around was the Sabbath day or not because we don't know what day they started on. But the point is that they were engaged in military activity on the Sabbath day. Okay? So there were certain imperatives. Also, there were spiritual activities. They were allowed to circumcise on the Sabbath day. They were allowed to gather together and to discuss and, and talk about the Scriptures and things like that on the Sabbath day. So it wasn't that all work was prohibited on, Sabbath, on the Sabbath. There were certain essential things that were permitted, but the idea was it needed to be a day of rest, generally speaking. Okay. And of course, they got totally carried away with it, so by the time we get to the New Testament era, Jesus is constrained all these absolutely ridiculous uh, stipulations that the Pharisees and the legalists had put upon the Sabbath day. But... But that is beside the point. What, what the point was is that God had established this Sabbath day as a day that was sanctified and holy to Him. To remind Israel of several things. To, mean, to remind Israel that, that God had completed all His work. To bring them weekly into a, into a regular weekly recognition of Him as their Lord and as their God in order to give them time to rest, to recuperate, to refresh physically. As a sign of their covenant relationship with Him, unique from all the rest of the nations. As an opportunity and a time when they were specifically directed to reflect upon their deliverance from Egypt. From their deliverance from slavery in order that they might be brought into a rest in the promised land. It was also given to them as a promise of an eternal rest and it was also given to them as a sanctification of time as well as a sanctification of the material universe. Okay. Well, then the question comes up and I just want to talk about it briefly is how does all this relate to us? This idea of rest. Well, it's very clear when we enter the New Testament era that there's some earth-shaking things that take place. And one of the most notable things is that all these Jewish believers, their day of worship radically shifted from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. Why? The resurrection. Something radically happened 
in the death and resurrection of Christ that altered the habits, excuse me, and the practices of all these Jewish believers. And it's inexplicable with anything else other than the other than the actual factual bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now why did it accomplish that? Why were these all these Jewish believers suddenly willing to set aside this Sabbath day and begin to worship and set aside and ultimately to rest on the first day of the week? Well, the reason is because Paul explains to us quite explicitly that the Sabbath was only a shadow. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and following. The Sabbath was only a shadow. The substance was Christ. And when the substance came, the shadow was no longer necessary. And so Paul says to the Colossians there, since Christ is the substance of which the Sabbath was only a shadow, don't let anybody act as your judge in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And Paul is basically saying to us that we are no longer obligated to keep the covenant Sabbath day. Now you may, if you wish, either on Saturday or Sunday or Wednesday. You can do it any day if you wish, but the point is the substance is here. It's Christ. And then we discover something else very important about this whole idea of Sabbath rest. It's true rest is directly associated with faith. You cannot have one without the other. So that out there in the wilderness on the, when they had the Sabbath, they had the Sabbath day, and they were out there all week long collecting manna, what happened on what happened on Friday? They collected twice. There was twice as much out there, and they collected twice as much, and they could save it through the next day so they wouldn't have to go out and collect the next day. Okay. But if they collected twice as much on Monday, what happened? It rotted. Okay. In other words, they were able to rest on the seventh day because they trusted God on the sixth day. And they went out there and they gathered that manna and they saved it up. Even though if they'd done it on Thursday, it would have rotted, they could save it up on Friday. And by faith, they knew it wouldn't rot and it didn't rot so that on, on Saturday they were able to rest. And so... So the writer of Hebrews brings us out so emphatically clear that rest is directly associated with faith. And the Sabbath is a picture of which Christ is the fulfillment. And we enter into rest by faith. So the whole idea of rest is as vital now as it was in the, day, the, the, the first day of the second week of creation, after creation. But now we understand that what that rest is, it's a rest in Christ. And we do it by faith. Well, we're out of time. We've talked all, all day about this idea, but we're out of time. And next week we'll pick up the story as we begin the first Talabah of Genesis. Okay?